Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. Hiya, thanks for downloading the show. My name is Susan Kalman. I'm a comedian and this is my podcast, Mrs Brightside, a cheerful take on depression. Today I'm talking to Jack Rook. I spent numerous weeks in bed watching, you know, the absolute worst ITV daytime programming you can. I can name every single loose woman from about 2008 to 2011. Have you been asked to go on Celebrity Mastermind? <laughs> Imagine that that was your special subject. Loose women from the time I became depressed to now. <laughs> now Jack's spoken openly about mental health and depression in the past but I've never actually met him so it's quite a strange thing to be in a cupboard with a stranger asking them about grief but it turned out to be a fascinating and quite revelatory discussion. We went down rabbit holes, we went up hills together, but it was brilliant. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, my name is Jack. I've got some granola in my teeth and um, that is social mobility for me. This is all gold I want for the podcast. Why are you making him do it? The sound check. <laughs> is that, are, we, are, we, are we recording now? Are we going? Yes, please include this part of it in the <laughs> podcast of me going, are we recording it? Because I think it's the level of professionalism people expect from a free podcast from the BBC. <laughs> so welcome to Mrs. Brightside, everybody. I'm in a basement cupboard with Jack. Mm. Could you introduce yourself to the lovely listeners? My name is Jack. Jack, uh, I should say my surname. Well, I don't have to. Maybe I'd just say just, just Jack, but it's the most common boy's name of Let's pretty much. Let's use the full name. <laughs> Jack Rook. And um, I'm a comedian, comedy writer, uh, mental health campaigner, and um, yeah, I don't really know ever how to properly describe myself. Sorry, can I do that again? I'm really yeah. I but I'm actually going to broadcast the bit where you've oh, asked if I've you can do it again. it again. Okay, right. I'm trying to make this a natural <clears> podcast. <throat> Am I not making you feel at ease, Jack? <laughs> What's your problem, mate? No, I just sort of forgot. <laughs> I'm really focusing on the bit of granola that's in my teeth. <laughs> And it just really threw me about what my what my LinkedIn credentials are. My name is Jack Rook Susan. Yes. I'm a comedy writer, yes. mental health campaigner, and all round top gal. Okay. <laughs> See, we'll use the first one. Um, <laughs> this uh, podcast. Uh, so I've got depression. I've written about depression. I'm I'm one of the cool kids that's had the it crab. Lot. Yes, the crab. I really food. like your analogy for it. Yeah, it's uh, it, it helps try and explain. It definitely goes sideways. It's a spectral type thing. It doesn't mm-hmm. go... I always think it's weird when people describe depression as up and down. I see it as the other way. It goes left and right. Like it sort of sways in you a bit. Mm-hmm. Sometimes tips you more to one side. So I really like the crab analogy. For me, it's uh, trying to explain to people who, who who haven't had the type of depression I've got. Because there's lots of different types of depression. Mm. It can be fleeting. It can be caused by a, something medical. It can be yeah. anything. My type of depression is constant yeah. And sometimes the crab's louder and sometimes it's not. So it hangs on to my ears mm. and whispers in my ear that I'm terrible, essentially. Yeah. And it's trying to explain to people what it's like to constantly have it in your life. Mm. And for me, it's about managing it and dealing with it and accepting it yeah. that I've got it. And to stop, almost stop fighting it. I spent such a long time fighting it that actually it was tiring. I think you have to sort of um, embrace maybe the influence that crab has on you and on your like drive and on your personality and on all your good qualities like like even though it's one of the most oppressive nasty creatures to have like hanging on your ears it also i think can be the most motivating character building like let's get up and fucking go type thing to to have I don't know. I don't want to be like 
Susan, it's great you've got that little depressive no, crab I mean, on you. No, but... what I learned was it makes me the person I am and I don't think mm. I'm a bad person. No. I'm caring, I am conscientious, I'm a workaholic, I'm constantly trying to achieve something and that's partly mm. my lack of self-confidence. You're a fucking good dancer no, as well. No, shut up. If... Anything good comes out of the fact I have a crippling lack of self-confidence is that I'm constantly trying to get more self-confidence. Therefore, I'm constantly mm. trying to achieve. And the realisation I came to was that, yes, I'm depressed. But actually, it's part of me. It's mm. part of me. And it actually creates some of the good qualities of my personality. I think it's important to figure out how those things shape your identity in a good way. So, like, for me personally, a lot of my work is about grief. And I think, um, like, I'm 24, and about half of my life now has been, like, dictated by, like, two really prominent uh, losses, I suppose. So I lost my dad when I was 15 to cancer very suddenly. He was diagnosed 10 days before he died, and it was, like, the maddest, weirdest thing, because up until then... You know, I come from a really lovely working class family. Everybody says we before me. It's like a proper kind of collective uh, of like joy, really. And and then it, all of a sudden that happened and it was like, whoa. Like it, it, the, the only analogy that I can have for it is it's a bit like a magician pulling a tablecloth off of a table and everyone's like, oh, oh no, everything has actually just toppled down and crashed and smashed. Like it's all broken. And... Um, and so that has definitely really shaped my identity. And then when I was 21, one of my really close friends from university took his own life um, called Ollie. And, and that was a whole different sort of grief because he was somebody who I'd spoken a lot to about his mental health and his depression and borderline personality disorder and, and, and really like, you know, did all the things, the textbook things that, you know, in the last six, seven years of there being more of a conversation about mental health, you're supposed to do. Like, I was that young guy who was opening up and chatting to him and it still didn't, you know, necessarily equate to him feeling compatible with the world and, and feeling like he could get over all those limitations that he felt he had. And so, for me, grief has really, like, dictated a lot of my character and sometimes I'm like, fucking great, because it's made me a little bit fearless. It's made me a little bit like, what's the worst that can happen? It's definitely given me a bit of like a drive and a motivation to to like write things the way I want to write them and, and perform things the way I want to do it and not necessarily um, <laughs> be like particularly um, opportunist in my like navigation of the industry creative industries because yeah. they're a bit like if you don't get it you don't get it i'll just go somewhere else yeah and and i think uh sometimes that comes across as arrogant but for me that's just like no i i just don't i i've i learned really early on that life is too short to go along with what wankers say yeah. <laughs> and, and it's been a really brilliant sort of character trait of mine i think and then on the other side though i like I'm constantly paranoid that more people are going to die all the time. And my mum calls the phone and I'm yeah. like, well, that's it. Somebody's dead. Yeah. <laughs> and if she calls it any, like, if she calls before nine o'clock in the morning or after nine o'clock at night, I, the, the fear of terror strikes in me when I see that call because I'm like, something awful must have happened. And, and I sort of, I think, live with a bit of like a worst case scenario mentality, mm -hmm. which is really difficult sometimes. So I presume the worst is going to happen because two major instances in my life, the worst thing has happened. Has happened, yes. And then I think once you get over that, you're a little bit, like, liberated slightly because you're like, well, fuck it. I'm <laughs> just going to try and, like, achieve what I want to achieve. I call it Calman's Law, which is <laughs> if the worst thing... what The worst thing in the world will probably happen to me. Yeah. So when I when I go into a scenario, my wife's always shouting at me because I'm always saying I'm always saying, Well, what if this happens? She goes, It won't happen. I say, Well, how do you know it's not gonna happen? How do you know that what I'm worrying about won't happen? Yeah. Because it's not likely to happen. Yes, but it's not impossible that it's gonna happen. Mm. Unlikely it's not impossible. My fears are still rational. Yeah. Completely. We never leave the house. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the crucial things about mental health, mental health is a giant umbrella. Mm. And as I said at the start, people have depression for various reasons. And one of the most interesting things is talking about when people first realised that they were depressed, were anxious, whatever it is. For me, all my life. 
I don't yeah. remember a time where I wasn't. For you, before kind of that incident of grief, were you anxious? Were you depressed? Or is that what you think the cause was of, of how you feel now? Do you know what? I think, uh, I feel like it was always going to be destined for me. <laughs> like We were just the I, lucky anointed <laughs> ones, yes. You know, I was like a uh, very chubby, sort of average at school, um, slightly clowny, in-the-closet gay teenager. And um, I think that is quite a good formula for later in life depression. <laughs> and uh, For people listening, Jack's just described my childhood years as well. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, that's what I was like at yeah, school. I think, yeah. you know, I, I was set up for, for a little bit of a wobble. And then I think, you know, my dad's um, death definitely sort of like pushed me off off the edge of that slightly. And, you know, I spent numerous weeks in bed comfort eating and watching you know the absolute worst itv daytime programming you can because that's like what grief is <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh i can name every single loose woman for about 2008 to 2011 and like the sort of semi-regular guest panels the lot like you've been asked to go on celebrity mastermind <laughs> imagine that that was your specialist subject loose women from the time i became depressed to now <laughs> <laughs> and we're going, yes, I'd love please. to see John Humphreys dealing Jackie with that. Brambles. <laughs> Jackie Brambles! Jackie Brambles! <laughs> she was from Aaron. She's the only oh, famous. She? Yeah, she was from Aaron, which is where we go on holiday. <laughs> oh, it's all about connections. It's all about connections. But that, no, I don't think a 24-year-old straight man would know who Jackie Brambles is, but a 24-year-old no, gay depressed man is completely... Yeah. I was devastated when she moved to LA and left the programme. <laughs> and she left the mainstream hosting team. That was that was the end for me. But um, but yeah, and, and I think I think I definitely, you, you know, grief is for me like, um, it's like the sea. So, you know, the, the waves that come in, but there's also the times where you're swimming in it and you're finding yourself again and it, it immerses you all the time. You're always in it. Like I, my dad died 10 years ago this September and I'm still, I still think about him every single day. Mm-hmm. More than once, like all the time. He was a black cab driver and I've only got to walk out of this building after we hear a shoot and just like the rattle of a taxi exhaust. You know, that sound was my life every day for 15 years coming home. That's when I knew I needed to be in bed or else I was in trouble. And I hear that all the time and it's lovely. You know, the first three years after he died, it was the worst noise ever. I used to (laughs) avoid central London at all costs. Mm -hmm. And now I think of it as like... This just like, it just takes me home. I love it. And I think very much my sort of depression and um, sort of experiences with my own mental health have have very much been uh, unpredictable. So like the year really after my dad died was obviously horrific, but I got a lot of fucking shit done. You know, I, I did my GCSEs. He died in the middle of my GCSEs. I revised super hard. I was just like, I think I think my biggest worry after he just died is that he's gone and life is now fucked. We're not going to be able to uh, afford our house anymore. We're not going to, I'm not going to have a future. There's no way I'm going to be able to go to college, let alone university. Like, like everything that you uh, set up as on a path on yeah. just seemed to vanish. And it was interesting because, you know, I'm very much the first one in my family to have ever really got an education. And and that was always sort of like, you're, uh, it was all sort of going to be like planned. It was going to be like, we've saved up a little bit of money for you to go to sit from college and you to do this and you to do all, all sorts. And then he died and I was like, well, that's out the window. And mm-hmm. and all of this in, sort of investment as me as an individual, you know, me and my dad were so close and he took me out all the time. He used to show me around London. He used to show me, we were from Watford. He used to just be like, I was this sort of proper mini me. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, and, and then when he went, it was for me, it was about trying to remember all of the sort of tools that I think he'd gave me, not necessarily realising he was doing it, but all the sort of ad- advice and, and wisdom and sort of the way he'd shaped my character and the way he tried to make me see the world. I was like, I need to take this on and I can't just sit on the sofa and be a stoner and watch Loose Women all the time, uh, you know, not every now the and time. then. But... Not all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and so I think um, my periods of depression have have always really coincided with when I've 
feel like I've really lost him because mm-hmm. I don't the last 10 years I haven't always felt like I've lost him which I'm I feel really lucky about yeah the periods where I do feel like I don't know where he is in me anymore is when I usually go a bit under and that's when it's like I'm not I'm not a nice person to be around I just a bit empty and a bit numb and mm-hmm. and not really um a version of myself that I'm happy with but I understand as well that there's a trigger for it and 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 that it's very rare for somebody to have lost their dad at 15 and then a mate at 21 in 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 really traumatic ways and um yeah I try to sort of make it a driving motivating force I think one of the, the things for me that really helped um I'm slightly older than you how old are you 24. Oh, I'm 20 years older than you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, no, well, you don't look at Susan. You don't. Oh, oh, thanks very much. Um, <laughs> so, when I started, when I was uh, late teens, went to university, studied mm. law, uh, pretty depressed, being very yeah. honest, um, no outlet, right? Yeah. There was no internet, Jack. I uh. didn't have a mobile phone. I don't think the Stand Comedy Club, which is, the, you know, a really great club in Scotland, was open at that point. There was nowhere for me to go, for my head to go. It just stayed inside my head, um, essentially chomping away at self esteem, confidence, etc., etc. I I wanted to be a comedian. I started doing comedy. I was shit until I started doing shows I wanted to do. Yeah, there's a discernible moment where, and that was when I started talking about what was in my head, Mm. whether it be politically, whether it be depression, whatever it was, because. That clicked. When you started writing shows, did you want to talk about... Because for me, it was a very gradual thing of opening up my head to an audience. Yeah. Was it gradual for you? Or did you find... Is that what you wanted to do when you started? Now, see, I think I'm the product of a lot of people that have sort of trailblazed before me. And I and I particularly am quite sort of grateful to... Especially, I suppose, you know, generations of, of gay people before me who definitely had it a lot harder i'm very welcome like thank you you are very thanks for going through that because it's okay because i was like 12 and everyone was like have you had a grinder and i was like what (laughs) like like i've sort of grown up with it and i do think unfortunately i don't think my generation always sort of pay their dues and need to actually be a little bit more my generation of gay men in particular need to educate themselves a little bit more on what came before them but it's also at the same time great that we don't have those same stigmas that we had and that's progress but like my sort of I suppose um story within comedy was that I started doing a comedy workshop every week at Soho Theatre and I'd started maybe like beginning of 2014 and it had about six months and it was just learning like stand-up skills and it was great and I loved it. And then you sort of get people coming in to sort of speak to you about the comedy industry and everyone says like, you start off, you do the open mic circuit and then you try and get a five minutes together and then you try and get like 10 minutes together and then you try and get a good 20 and then you invite agents in and then you do a half hour maybe at the fringe and you split an hour and then you do an hour and it takes about six years. And I was like, fuck that. (laughs) Like, I I know exactly what I want to write an hour's worth of material about and I can't afford it, but I'm going to find and make a way to do it. And I always knew that I, I eventually ended up going to university and I was on this scholarship whereby I could apply for certain money to make a sort of final year project. And I was like, I want to make a documentary about grief. I want to make a documentary about losing my dad and how me and my nan who's his mum dealt with it and my nan is like a proper mischievous brilliant kind of working class grafter ex-dinner lady doesn't really care about what you know people uh I don't think she's one of those people who doesn't care what people think, but I don't think I actually think it's worse. I don't think she cares about how people feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um mm-hmm. and I said to her, I was like, I want to make this documentary with you. I'm gonna come around with a camera on Father's Day and we're gonna record an interview and and we're gonna build this thing together and it's gonna be about how we use dad's death to get what we wanted out of people. It's gonna be about how we used grief to manipulate everyone around us to get what we want and to sort of make fun of the fact that actually in Britain 
we're incredibly awkward when somebody dies. We don't know how to deal with the bereaved. And my nan is a sort of elderly woman at 80, and me as a teenager at 15, were the two that were completely cut out of the conversation because we are the sort of more traumatic ends of the spectrum. I was the youngest child. People didn't want to talk to me about it. People didn't want to talk about my dad with me because they found it really awkward. And contrasting with my nan, she was you know, in her 80s with a lot of friends around her dying, but nobody ever wanted to talk to her about her son. She was never be were ever really able to remember him and, and that, that sort of awkwardness really affected us particularly. And so we just used to take the piss out of it because that's sort of what you've got to do. And yeah. when people would avoid sort of like looking at you in the street, I'd sort of make a, an issue of sort of running up to them and tapping them on the shoulder and be like, hey, how you doing? Like, like just I wanted to be visible because I didn't like the fact that just because this tragic thing had happened to me, all of a sudden, somebody that I've known for 15 years is crossing the road to the other side to not speak to me. Like, don't be a coward. I'm the same person. And I think my nan felt the same. And... And so, yeah, we made this show called Good Grief and and it was supposed to be a documentary and then I ran out of money and I met a lovely woman from the Arts Council who was like, Psst, we can give you cash to put your comedy stories and films together in like a, a live show. And so I did it and basically went to the underbelly and begged them to give me a slot, like properly emotionally manipulated them <laughs> and had a meeting with the programmer who's called Marina, who's amazing, who yes. I, I owe pretty much my whole career Jack, to. Jack, you're telling my story because I also begged them and yeah. they gave me a slot <laughs> yeah. using emotional manipulation. And, yes. And, and then... Um, and then, actually, I wasn't going to tell this part of the story, but I think it's relevant. I was at Underbelly's offices. This is 2015... March about three years ago now and um, I came out of the meeting and I was downstairs and as I'd been doing this pitch meeting to them my phone kept ringing all the time and uh, I just put it on site I ignored it and I saw it's my friend Claire and uh, I went to university with Claire and I sort of had this like weird paranoia that she was calling me to do something with my friend Ollie and I was downstairs in literally by the reception of Underbelly and she called me and she told me that Ollie had taken his own life. And I was like, this is the weirdest, um, most bizarre, horrible um, uh, experience I've ever had. Is to be like, I literally had just spent about 35 minutes pitching my tits off, being like, I need to make this show about grief. It's my nan's going to be in the videos. Like, and then, and then found out about him. Mm-hmm. and I couldn't walk anywhere and Marina found me sort of downstairs outside the office about 10 minutes later because I hadn't left and I was like I've j- I just found out that my friend has taken his own life and I don't I don't I, don't, I need to go home to my mum's I don't know what I'm doing I don't know where I'm going and she sort of gave me this big hug and then she was like well if you want some good news we- we've given you a slot and so it was the weirdest moment because it everything that I'd worked for for about really about 15 months to really put together this, all these films with my nan and this interview and all these stories that I had about grief to then find out that news and then to be given mm-hmm. a slot at, in Edinburgh, a, a really good one at four o'clock, slam in the middle of the afternoon at Underbelly Cowgate, which is my dream venue. And I think, you know, I have to sort of believe that things happen for a reason. And so I sort of did good grief very much going through the grieving process of Ollie. And then... Um, How was that? Because on stage, you do the same, the same show every night. Yeah. But it, so you say the same words. Yeah. But it often feels quite different. And I, when I did a show about depression, I became fr- sometimes I was frustrated with myself because I sounded like I was whining. But sometimes it was very upsetting. Yeah. But you're still trying to do a show That's... and I would find myself going, I am about to lose it here. Mm. How did that feel doing that show, going through that grief, that very raw grief, about grief, yeah. in front of an audience? Um, sometimes cathartic, sometimes the most foolish thing I've ever done, but the most actually dangerous thing I've ever done for my own mental health and for my own well-being. And thankfully, I think I was surrounded by 
a bunch of people that were like, here's this 21-year-old kid who's who's actually going through an experience that he's then articulating comedically. And, you know, that show was funny. Like, that show got really, you know... It, ended up being commissioned by BBC Comedy for Radio 4 like it was a it was a comedy show and I and I think I was really lucky that a lot of people were like let's take care of him and I had my absolute low points that Edinburgh and then absolute highs and and that for me is why I sort of see mental health as as a left to right spectrum sometimes because <laughs> I really was going from like one end to the other you know I I think um so one thing I didn't mention when I told that story is that as I was making Good Grief, the November before my nan died, my nan died after I did the first ever preview, mm-hmm. which was mad because all of a sudden I was like, I'm writing the show with you about grief and now you've died. And then five months later, I'm at Underbelly's office pitching it and then Ollie's died. So it was it was so much. And I think I look back on it now and I, I don't think I've I've never really been that proud of myself, really. But I I look back at that 21-year-old and I'm like, I'm really proud of you for sticking to it. When I know, I don't think anybody would have been like, well, Jack's fucked us over if I'd have gone, I can't do this. No, of course. And, yeah. um, and you know, I think my driving force for it was that I did the show, we opened it, and then all of a sudden it just took off and it started selling out and I was getting great reviews. My first three reviews were five stars. Like and it was and and it was one of those things where all of a sudden everyone was really interested in what I had to say about a topic that I didn't Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. feel like people had spoken about in a way that I cared about there had been a such a trope of dead dad shows in edinburgh it became a sort of in joke you know Stuart lee's got a bit of material about it and i'd sort of (laughs) researched and collated all this sort of stuff about what had been said and i was like well this is going to (laughs) be the dead dad show to end all dead dad shows (laughs) your dad's maybe dead but this is the perfect dead dad show (laughs) yeah yeah um and and so like you know, it was it was hard for me. But then at the same time, when you get an email and it's like the New York Times are going to come to your show and Lynn Gardner from The Guardian is going to come and see your show. And like, I'm not drama trained. I didn't go to drama school. I never I never done any sort of theatre or anything like that before. I was like, you know, I, I it it was a massive it felt like a massive stamp of approval after I had felt for quite a number of years that I was very silent and and very un- invisible and very ignored. So the, it's it's quite a fascinating thing because I mean more when I was doing shows about LGBTQ equality. Mm. Um, this lady's not for turning either, which was about equal marriage. Yeah, which was frustrating and made me desperately angry. But the act of doing the show made me happier because I was at least saying something about it. Yeah, completely. Because one of the most destructive things about depression and anxiety, I think, is anger. Mm. internalised anger hating myself hating this horrible feeling of negativity yeah and I found that if I expressed it whether it be anger or frustration I felt it less myself yeah especially when you do it 28 nights in a row in a row yeah you know in a cave um, so whilst there was negativity the act of actually sometimes things are very difficult to see I, I have more difficulty talking to my wife about a problem than I do telling 250 people on a Friday oh, night. Oh, yeah, completely. And it's a very curious thing mm. that I am more open with an audience of strangers at the Fringe than I often am with my own family. But it's because 
you dictate the space that you're about to to talk about it in you know you it, that's what i think is the the best comedians aren't necessarily the ones with the funniest jokes they're the ones who can walk out on stage and they own every single inch of the room they own the ceiling they own the floor they own the walls the first time that i really felt that Actually, you know, the most recent time that I really felt that I think was the most powerful was seeing Hannah Gadsby's show, Nanette, in Edinburgh. And I saw it in the Assembly Theatre, which is one of the biggest spaces up at the Edinburgh Fringe. It's like a 500-seater. And she owned every single tile in the room. And and it was phenomenal. And, And I was suddenly like this is the best piece of culture I've ever seen. This is better than my favourite album. It's better than my favourite film. And it's a live comedy show. And I think that is the power of it. Unfortunately, though, what happens when you go into a room as a comedian and you speak about an issue like that is that there is still a sort of contingency within the comedy world that are like, "Mm, well, it's theatre. It must be theatre. Yes. Mm, Well, it's performance art. Mm, Like, and there's a sort of there's still this sort of um, speculation about what someone's intentions are. And but I think for me, that show in particular, if anyone hasn't seen it, is is one of the most incredible pieces of comedy ever and and hilariously funny to uh, to explain because I, she's currently in uh, at the time of recording this podcast uh, Hannah Gadsby's in America <laughs> so uh, Hannah Gadsby is a an Australian comedian mm. who I've watched for many years in shows that she's done I'm going to ask you a question about it. That's why I'm just explaining to yeah. people listening. So the show was about how she was stopping comedy, doing stand-up, partly because she felt complicit in trivialising her own traumas yeah. in a way. So she was telling jokes. I won't spoil it in case you do see it. She was trivialising incidents in her life that were actually genuinely horrific to get people to laugh. Yeah. Because she was talking about comedy is tension and release. That's what it is. Mm. And she retold some jokes, the truth of jokes I've heard her tell on stage. Mm. So I've seen her tell the routines and she was telling the honesty. And what I found very fascinating about the whole thing was being complicit in trivialising things for laughter. So I know I've told jokes about things that were genuinely horrific. And the thing about her show, as comedians, we want to make people laugh. Mm. But am I at any point doing myself and others a disservice. This is a big topic. Sorry, Jack. Yeah, no, but it's a good Or one. is it better to simply have it out there mm. however I propose it? Please reply, Jack Rook. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, that's what I thought of about yeah. Nanette. I think that... I think that by understanding the way that... Let's take fat people okay i did a panel discussion last year at the south bank center called why are fat people so fucking funny and and the issue is is it's like the oldest defense mechanism in the world like if you can make somebody laugh and you can diffuse attention and you can diffuse if you can make a joke about yourself first before somebody else does it about you mm-hmm. then somehow that feels like a sort of protective armor Really, for a lot of people, and I think for the majority of people, it is like a another sort of little dig to the mental health. It's like another sort of like, I'm going to make this joke first because I'm going to empower myself. Absolutely. But really, are you actually just like, you know, yeah, definitely like doing a disservice to yourself and others and just yeah, putting yourself down for I the sake of a I tell a joke about how I look. Yeah. And actually what I want to do is stand there and scream... Fuck the lot of you. (laughs) I hate the way I look, but I'm making a joke about myself so you feel more comfortable. Yeah. And it's it's a very... I think the more you do comedy and the more you think about it, and and I I think Hannah's show is really interesting, I can't give up comedy. I have a mortgage. Yeah. And I I I still enjoy it. And I I still enjoy it. I still enjoy it, but it was fascinating to think about whether it's... When we're doing shows about uh, being gay, about being depressed, about just being a human being. Yeah. About just being a human being. Are we sometimes trivialising things? Of course we are. That's what comedy is. Comedy is binary. Comedy is making things into something. But I was thinking, have I done myself a disservice? Because people don't believe I have no self-confidence. 
Yeah. Because when I'm on stage, I look like I have all the self-confidence. Despite telling a joke about it, they think I'm making it up. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, You can see us. We're both sitting in a slightly windowless <laughs> room going, this is a really... This, is, this, quite, is, this is Well, look, fascinating. You could... People, I think, could accuse me of trivialising death and mental health all the time. You know, my show is called Good Grief. Yeah. The whole thing, you walked out on stage, I had Hayley Cropper's coffin from Coronation Street that I managed to source from a props department. It was a floral cardboard coffin and I filled it up with my favourite bereavement junk food. My whole aesthetic for it, I had like funeral flowers that spelt good grief on the stage. I made it look like like a sort of um, chat show, basically. I wanted it to be like, I, I wanted it to be the loose women of grief. I wanted myself to be Jackie Brambles. I'm going to take you for an hour. We're going to go from everything from like, I'm going to tell you about my favourite lasagna recipe that all the neighbours used to drop on the doorstep and then run back into their four by four so they didn't have to speak to us. I'm going to tell you about, you know, my my nan at the very end, the sort of finale of that show was about my nan literally like dying the day we after we did the first preview and and how amazing it was how actually I think that was the perfect time for her to go because she gave me the best gift, which was all of her stories and all of her advice and when my dad died, I was so gutted because I didn't get to sit with him necessarily and be like, tell me everything that I need to know to equip me for the rest of my life. I just had to go off what he'd already taught me. With my nan, the poor woman, I used to sit with her with a dictaphone in front of her face. I've got hours of her recorded, of her stories, of, of her voice, because I miss my dad's voice so much and I didn't want to miss hers. And I feel really lucky that actually with the guys of the comedy show, I could do that. And and I I definitely think I created a piss take about grief that also was like this is how incredibly serious and damaging it can be when you approach this topic with an awkward I'm going to ignore it mentality that I think is quite common in Britain and I think that's what's amazing about Nanette that's what's amazing about your work it's it's about um it's trivialising it to an extent but I think if you can then undercut it mm. with a sense of like when you trivialise something, you're asking a question, I think. So you are asking a question to the audience being like, are we taking this seriously? Mm -hmm. As long as you provide not necessarily the solution, but some sort of solution or some sort of answer to that, then I think that's valid. Does that make sense? It, um, it, it absolutely does. And for me, one of the guiding things... I've always thought, and I think about feminism and I think about politics and I think about depression, I think about, about everything, mm. is I hate being patronised. Right? Yeah. I, I, I cannot stand it. Because I'm short, I am patronised more than you can... People pat me on the head. It's just horrific. Yeah. I'm also aware of the fact I'm a university-educated... You know, I've got a law degree. And what I hate is discussion of terminology getting in the way of what we feel yeah so in everything that i've done and this is what's great about this podcast is it's not medical it's not scientific we use the terminology that we wish to yeah. use this is about a discussion it's about making people just talk about things i don't think everyone listening to this is clinically depressed and sitting in their pants <laughs> but there are people there who are a bit sad and have been sad for a long time but don't quite understand what it is and that could be depression there's anxiety mm. is a huge thing that's happening yeah and what i hate is when people who have the time sit and discuss about what we should how we should be discussing grief how i should discuss my depression yeah this is the right way of doing it because i suppose the way i've expressed how i feel has changed yeah and through the years and it was right at the time it was right at the time that I wrote it. And it's funny because it evolves. Yeah. And the act of writing those shows has made me think more about about it all. Mm. Just getting out of my head. I think that's the really... I have one sort of um, thing that I I really, really resound with that, which is... Before Ollie had died, when I was at university, I actually started volunteering for a charity called Calm, who are a male suicide prevention charity. I wrote my dissertation all about the representation of suicide in the media. And part of my, like, 
researchers going into schools was speaking about how like suicide isn't selfish it's not this sort of selfish act that someone commits one also we shouldn't use the word commit because that comes from when it used to sort of be like a crime there's that and also there's never really one reason why somebody takes their own life it's a usually a culmination of things one thing might be a trigger event but that you can't just be like oh they did it because of this and you can't place blame on people i did all of that for like three four years carrying around charity buckets leafleting the lot ollie died and i was like you selfish prick (laughs) my like heart my insides were like how could you do this to us how could you do this to my friend claire how could you do this my friend jimmy claire's got she's so stressed she's not sleeping she's got ulcers all over her like i i remember having a good three months of being like like so angry at him like that is not (laughs) the sort of you know pc advised charitable way to to feel it's not a way that i think we should discuss suicide in the media but as the bereaved person that is legitimately how i felt yeah no way do I feel that now completely like I'm I'm over that like I I am now in a place where I want to as much as possible honor and remember Ollie and try and get people to empathize with the string of events and the culmination of things that was going on for him that led him to taking his own life Mm -hmm. that's my focus that's what my sort of BBC3 documentary last year was all about that's what a new project I'm working on, like, that's it. But for those three months after he had done it, that's how I felt. And and I think it's important to be honest about that mm-hmm. because to not be so would be doing a disservice to me and other bereaved people from Absolutely. suicide. And, and yeah, I, I, and, you know, <laughs> I really hope that people understand, <laughs> I'm saying this, so I really hope people understand the thought process behind it, but... It, that was my instinctive feeling. I remember screaming into my pillow and just being like, you fucking selfish <clears throat> prick. Like, just being angry. And that is anger. That is what anger can do to someone. And I think, you know, my next live show, if I write it, if I ever get around to it, I've, I st- I've got a Microsoft Word document on my computer and I've started it and it's called All the Rage. And it's like about anger and how we... I think are living through a moment right now where activism is 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 trendy if a sort of commercial venture can profit from it and and what we have nowadays is we want all those sort of like social media marketing trendy brand companies they're all looking to align themselves with social causes they're all looking to align themselves with artists or spokespeople or whatever who can you know be activists but what they don't want is for those people to be angry what they don't want is to deal with any of the rage or any of the chips on the shoulders or any of the scabs that people have who are victims of something traumatic who are who are representing an issue that's affected them and this has been my issue for the last 18 months is that i've been like wheelbarrowed out as like the poster child for like youth male mental health and and I think I have something unique and interesting to say about that process having been a young person who's suffered with well struggled with depression having been a young gay person coming out and going through that experience and being a young bereaved person and being bereaved by a suicide I feel like I have I have some sort of qualification but what I think is is really interesting is how my anger is always edited out Anytime that I am passionate about something or I mention maybe a political piece of legislation that has led to, you know, such horrendous mental health cuts and horrendous, you know, impact that political decisions have on people, on vulnerable people, that's always cut out. If I do like a campaign for, say, like a men's uh, I have to be really careful how I say this. A sort of young man's brand. <laughs> I don't want to hear this bit, but you have to be very careful. I have to be careful. Say I do something for a young man's brand. Yes. I have done that a couple of times, uh-huh. and and I will speak very honestly and frankly, and then I'll be always very intrigued when I see the final edit. And it is just like the very top lines of like 
me being like, I really think we need to open up about depression. More men need to talk. Full stop. Done. Wrapped up. But me saying things like, I think we need to look at why in certain areas of this country there are really low mental health provisions and and why, especially in rural areas, being gay is so hard and so difficult. And me speaking about these more sort of complex, only slightly complex factors that lead to why we have such a bad mental health crisis always, always is edited out. But you see, it's not, it's not, it's not acceptable. And I'll tell you, I, to people. Um, so, mm. uh, Me Too, Time's Up, yeah. Harvey Weinstein stuff uh, m- my conversations with my female friends and male friends to say but mostly female friends and facebook rants of of course this has been happening for years yeah this is i mean in, uh, true anger mm. none of it expressed in public because we self-censor yeah because we don't want people to know what we especially if you've been doing it for as long as myself and a number of my friends are, we know what will happen. Yeah. So as a result, my anger, of which there is mountain, <laughs> about the representation of lesbians, about depression, mm. about a whole lot of things, is never expressed. Yeah. Even on stage, even in my shows, I self-censor. I self-censor in my shows because I think I would frighten people. If yeah. I was truly honest about how I feel about things, I think, think I would, would terrify. Oh, I think I would terrify them. That's why I loved Hannah Gadsby's show because yeah, I, there because were streaks of anger in that. Absolutely, that I was like, "Thank fuck, somebody's actually being allowed to be legitimately angry." It, it was rather a, than completely. the polished. And she was accusing us, and she was saying, "You people who've laughed at me in, yeah. in the same the anger that sometimes you feel." The difference being, I think she had got to the stage where whether she gives up or not, this was a. Del- I cannot see myself because I love the people who come to see my shows. Mm. It's not their fault. I feel like this. It's not yeah. their yeah, fault yeah, yeah. I have this rage inside me. <laughs> my whole point about comedy from the very beginning was I want people to leave my show feeling better or more informed. Even then, if I'm telling them something difficult, I still want them to, to feel happier. To feel happier yeah. than when they came in. Mm. I don't want to say to them, I've just made a joke about the DUP. Actually, in Belfast, gay people can't get married and that makes me weep at night. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with you. I don't want to do that to an audience too. You know, my biggest thing is to make sure that they leave feeling as empowered as possible yes. to feel like they've learned something. Or but that, I understand what you know, you're saying is there's a but, whole part of you that yeah. wants to do more, but the outlet for it is restricted in mainstream. Yeah, I think I think there's a big part of me that would, you know, I, I wrote a sketch that BBC Comedy put up last year which was um, <clears throat> around this time last year, actually. So the government made a cut to something called widowed parents' allowance, which was a sort of basic uh, welfare payment for bereaved parents. So essentially, if you had a child under 18 and you'd lost your partner, uh, as long as you were married, which is a very important part to mention because this completely excludes uh, gay parents and LGBTQ mm-hmm. Uh, parents, uh, as long as you were married, yeah. then you could receive a weekly benefit payment that was basically that would come from your deceased partner's national insurance contributions, a pension that they're not going to get. The government decided to cut this. So rather than you, you got it up until your youngest child was 18 from last year, from the 6th of April 2017, uh, you would get it up until a year after your partner had died. And then once the one year anniversary came up, gone. And I think it was one of the most callous cuts because it really was about saying, you know, we are going to take from the most vulnerable. Not only are we going to take from the most vulnerable, we're going to take from the most vulnerable at their most vulnerable time. Yes. Because anybody who's been through grief knows that once a year, 18 months is up, that's really when you feel like the full, full effect of somebody's loss. The first year to 18 months, you're an autopilot. You're just trying to get through it. And that's, and I, and I, and it upset me to the point I was crying about it every day for about a month. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this comedy sketch, which was basically a sort of uh, piss take parody of like a DWP 
advert where I was basically like, uh, if you're a parent and you're uh, about to die, make sure you die before the 6th of April, 2017. Because it literally, and I was sort of like, we constructed this funny thing where a parent suddenly dies like a minute after and she's like, no! Like, because it literally is that if you died on the 5th of April, 2017 at 11.59pm, your family are allowed payment and I'm really proud of it and it was funny and it was really well received but it's just like a it's it's interesting how much that sort of um sense of like political anger yes gets like wiped out yeah Jack this is genuinely be one of the most fascinating conversations (laughs) because it's gone in areas that I didn't expect it to but the people listening to this, uh, we don't know who's going to listen to this. People with depression, people without depression, people are like the archers. Um, <laughs> I always like to give my guests the final word to say whatever they want to people listening to it, to themselves when they were younger, to wh- whatever, whatever it is you want to say about depression and mental health, to conclude it. I think my biggest... Um My favourite thing that I think my dad taught me when I was a kid was the thing that I think I started off this interview with, which is that you say we before me. And that's a much stronger way to live a life. It's a much happier way to live a life. And even though you as an individual will go through things that feel like they're only in your head, by like trying to find in any way possible a way of making that me into a we, like... It's going to make it better. And I think that applies to most things in life and in particular your your mind and its well-being. Couldn't agree more. And if you're listening to this, look forward to Jack and I's Edinburgh Fringe show in 2019 <laughs> called We're Very Angry. <laughs> and we're going to scream at you for about 55 minutes. I think that would be a cracking show. I'm definitely up for it. Just I'm take half an hour each yeah. and just scream at people <laughs> about things that make us angry. Yeah, I'm up for that. If we could sort of get some kind of like um, backup dancers or something like that. How about Loose Women? Oh yeah, Jackie, Jackie Bramble. Brambles on the Jackie phone. Jackie Brambles. Let's help Jack- the agent. Do you know? I probably could. I probably could. I probably know someone who knows Jackie Brambles. Should we do a radio handshake where we have to make it make a noise that you okay. know what it is? <laughs> so Great. Like I some actually, form of wet jelly it just sounded food. like a really bad fap, like a horrible <laughs> wank. At the end there. Oh, it's okay. Uh, I'm an ex-lawyer. I take your word for it. Uh, see you in a couple of years to be angry. Yeah, wicked. Cheers, Jack. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you download your podcast from and then you'll automatically get next week's episode next week i'll be talking to bethany black i remember growing up and the only sort of representation of mental health of any kind was uh, howling mad murdoch off of the 18 oh yeah which massively <laughs> oversold the benefits <laughs> and how much fun it would be you had a lot of fun <laughs> i've never stolen and flown a plane and, and that is one of my great regrets <laughs> If you like the show, do leave us a review, as that will help other people find it too. And if you want to get in touch, then you can email mrsbrightside at bbc.co.uk. And finally, we know this podcast talks about things that might have affected you or someone you know personally. If that's the case and you'd like some further info, head to the Mrs Brightside page on the BBC website and we'll put up some links to places you might find useful. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, Calman out. 